mandatory meeting of the Transportation Environment Committee to order at 1.32 p.m. Let's start with roll call. Candelas? Here. Ortiz? Present. Foley? Here. Davis? And Cohen? Here. Thank you. All right, we're, I just want to start by reminding members of the public that in their public comment, this should be on topic and related to uh, city business and, and, and business of this committee and remain uh, respectful. We will start with the first item on the agenda today, which is our report from um, it, about integrated solid waste management. Good afternoon. Thank you for having us this afternoon. And um, I'm Valerie Osman, Deputy Director with Environmental Services Integrated Waste Management. Um, unfortunately, Carrie Romano is, I think, delayed, hopefully joining us in a little bit. So I will start us off. Um, with me today, I have Jenny Loft, our Public Information Manager in Environmental Services. And we're going to be going over the Integrated Solid Waste Management Program. I will let Carrie settle in and give us a few <laughs> welcome co comments. Thank you. Sorry about that. It's been a been a long day, as you might imagine. Um, anyway, thank you so much for the opportunity to to talk about solid waste with you. Um, we're particularly proud of the program that we have. Um, as uh, I don't think uh, Valerie covered yet, recall this is the one service the city provides that touches our residents at their home every week. And uh, we're proud of the fact that that continues to happen every week and um, that we have a great partnership with our haulers. Um, they are rated on customer service, as you'll hear, because uh, we think it's important that our, uh, our customers are happy as well as the environmental performance. And with that, I'll turn it over to Valerie. Thanks, Carrie. Looks like I stalled just long enough. <laughs> All right. Integrated waste management. There we go. Integrated waste management oversees solid waste collection, processing, and disposal for all residential, commercial, and city facility operations. We manage an annual program budget of about $300 million, and staff oversee contracts and agreements for the services provided by various haulers and facilities located within city and county limits. This reduces transportation-related greenhouse gas emissions from having an impact to having transport material to long distances for processing and disposal. Our enforcement team ensures that solid waste related municipal code compliance, and we maintain over 1,300 public litter cans throughout the city, primarily located in business districts. San Jose participates in the Santa Clara County Household Hazardous Waste Program. The city's permanent household hazardous waste drop-off facility is located at the Environmental Innovation Center, and it's the primary drop-off location for countywide residents and small businesses. Residents can make a free drop-off appointment at the facility or drop items off with retail partners located countywide. Our programs provide essential services to the entire community, as Carrie mentioned, visiting homes and places of business at least once a week, and our customer satisfaction survey results remain consistently high. Our programs also surpass recycling mandates, provide ease of use and exceptional value to customers, and serve as examples to other jurisdictions. I'd now like to introduce you to Jenny Loft, our public information manager, who will talk about our extensive Recycle Right campaign. Thanks, Valerie. Um, well, I'm happy to update you all on our recycling, uh, Recycle Right campaign. 
ESD continues to outreach to our community on Recycling Right with our robust public education campaign. Here are examples of a campaign in English, Spanish, and Vietnamese. On this PowerPoint slide are examples of our marketing activities, including an ad on Univision mobile app and website, a banner at Grand Century Mall, an ad on Facebook and Instagram, a postcard mailed to all city households, and a bus ad. Next slide, please. Not only do our ads have a recycling action, such as soiled uh, containers go in the garbage, there's also a message to visit our recycling website that contains over 400 items on sanjoserecycles.org for additional information. Since July 2019, when this website was launched, we've garnered about 1.2 million users. In fall 2022 and in winter 2023, we launched the Spanish and Vietnamese Recycle Right websites, respectively. Now individuals who speak Spanish and Vietnamese can find out whether an item is recyclable in their respective languages. Next slide. We also engage our community by presenting recycle right information where they are at. Last, last year, ESD staff presented and tabled at over 50 engagements, including at neighborhood associations, senior nutrition programs, Silicon Valley Pride, the Moon Festival, and National Night Out, just to name a few. We've also partnered with PRNS, the library system, and San Jose Police Department for some of these activities. In addition, we're also partnering, uh, we partnered with two nonprofits to be ambassadors and to help us get the word out about recycling, specifically to Vietnamese and Spanish neighborhoods. This concludes my portion of the presentation and I'll hand this back to Valerie. Thanks, Jenny. We're gonna talk a little bit about diversion. So um, fiscal year 2022-23, diversion, and when we talk about diversion, we're talking about the material that's in the waste stream that's kept out of the landfill. This includes recycling and organic, such as food scraps and yard trimmings that are sent to compost. In fiscal year 22-23, our citywide diversion was 64%. That's a slight increase from the previous fiscal year of 62%, so that's a good thing that it went up a couple of points. Our program goals surpassed the state's 50% recycling mandate. The residential program maintained its high diversion rate of about 70%. Our commercial program saw an increase from 43% to 47%. Um, this is mainly due to capital improvements that we saw at our zero waste energy development facility, and that allowed for better recoverability of organic material. City staff continue to work with our service providers on outreach to businesses and residents to address right sizing of service levels, the importance of proper sorting, and reducing contamination in all waste streams. As Jenny mentioned, we're trying to influence residents to recycle right and combat recycling contamination. One recent study that we launched is the larger garbage cart study. In July 2022, about 4,200 single family dwellings along five different recycling routes were offered a 96-gallon garbage cart at no additional charge to test whether larger garbage cart, uh, a larger garbage cart reduces recycling contamination. We shared our findings at um, t and &E in April 2023, and at that time we shared that while we saw a decrease in contamination, the results were inconclusive and showed continued problems with recycling contamination. So we've expanded the study this year 
to include five additional routes with approximately 4,300 households. Um, those carts are being deployed right now. This is going to provide us a larger sample size and the study will contain participants in all collection areas and all council districts throughout the city. The results are going to help us determine if we should consider deploying larger garbage carts citywide. The study will go through December 2024 and staff will be analyzing the results. On to regulations. The city's solid waste program complies with multiple solid waste regulations centered around waste reduction, recycling, organics diversion, and climate change. Staff worked with the city's intergovernmental relations team to track major waste and recycling bills introduced to state legislature during the legislative session. We wanted to highlight a couple of exciting updates from 2023 related to plastic packaging and electronic waste. Senate Bill 54 is the Plastic Pollution Prevention and Packaging Producer Responsibility Act. It's a landmark extended producer responsibility law that will reduce single-use non-recyclable plastics, including recycling, and place less burden on cities and taxpayers. In 2023, the state's Cal Recycle Department conducted several informal rulemaking workshops to solicit feedback and engage with stakeholders, and by the end of calendar year 2024, the regulations will be finalized and are expected to be adopted in January 2025. Staff anticipates that this regulation will reduce non-recyclable plastics and single-use items and divert more material from landfill. Senate Bill, 20, uh, sorry, Senate Bill 244 is the Right to Repair Act, and in October 2023, the governor signed this act into law requiring electronics and appliance manufacturers to provide parts, tools, and documentation to both independent repair shops and product owners. This bill is expected to extend the life of electronics generated and used, which will reduce waste and costs. SB 1383 is the most significant waste reduction mandate to be adopted in California in the last 30 years. Environmental benefits associated with it include fighting climate change, improving air quality, donating edible food to those in need, and decreasing tons of organic material landfill. Most importantly, SB 1383 aligns with Climate Smart San Jose by reducing greenhouse gas emissions and it helps the city achieve its zero waste goals through waste diversion and by supporting local recycling markets. This slide shows a list of accomplishments since February 2023 which are partially supported by 1.45 million in grant funds. Those are through April 2024. And we've also applied for an additional 1.58 million in grant funds to use from March 2024 through April 2026 to continue implementation efforts. So our next steps in integrated waste management, um, we'll start with the zero waste element. We're working towards finalizing the zero waste element, which will be incorporated into Climate Smart San Jose. We're currently conducting stakeholder engagement, which is underway through February 9th. The community has various channels to leave their feedback through a survey, email, phone call, directly on the element via the online portal, and there will be a virtual Zoom meeting which will be held tomorrow evening from 6 to 7.30 p.m. We're pleased to see the number of commenters and comments and the survey participation so far during this engagement period. Staff plans to bring the zero waste element back to council in fall 2024. We continue to actively monitor bills for impacts on San Jose programs and ratepayers. We'll continue our work on decreasing recycling contamination through continued recycle right outreach. And we're gonna be testing a new outreach 
initiative of inspecting recycling carts at the curb, leaving educational oops and good job tags, starting with routes that have above an average contamination level of 60% or so or above. We're working on deploying those teams this spring. We'll continue with SB 1383 annual compliance requirements and new enforcement of commercial accounts that need to subscribe to organic service. And we'll continue to pursue grant opportunities and implement awarded grants. ESD was recently awarded a $50,000 household hazardous waste grant from CalRecycle for targeted outreach to increase program participation and is moving along with a CalRecycle beverage container recycling grant to distribute recycling tote bags and solid waste enclosure signs to multifamily dwellings. And with that, we are available for questions. All right, thank you so much. We will start with public comment. Jordan Muldo. Jordan Muldow, District 3. Uh, thank you for the report um, and thank you for your good work on uh, recycling and landfill diversion. I wanted to speak briefly about the pilot program with the 96-gallon garbage carts. Um, these carts are very dark. They're very hard to see at night um, for people who are cycling on the road. Um, very experienced cyclists with you know, very powerful lights can still have a very hard time seeing these carts and can end up colliding into them. Um, and so especially as you're considering deploying larger carts, I think it's important to consider how we can potentially make these carts easier to see and easier to avoid. Um, I had two suggestions that I would hope we could potentially try out as part of the pilot program. Um, if it can't be done with the pilot program, I hope it could be trialed in some other fashion uh, very soon. Uh, first is I would suggest installing retroflective stripes on the carts so that they can be seen at a distance uh, whenever you have a headlight shining on it. This would make them very easy to see. Uh, I would also suggest stamping the message keep out of bike lane on the carts as an educational reminder to homeowners um, that the bike lane is not the proper place for them to be placing their uh, garbage carts um, again, I know of cyclists who have collided with these um, and been injured, um, and so I think it is important to take steps to reduce that, especially as we are pushing carts that are both bigger and will also be heavier if they're fuller with garbage. Thank you. How June Lee? <clears throat> Hi, thank you, Chair. Uh, I'm sorry I'm a little sick today, so I couldn't give comment in person. Uh, my name is Hao Jin Lee, and I reside in District 6 in San Jose. I would also like to echo what Jordan said about the large black um, waste management trash cans. I have personally collided with one of them at night. It was kind of, it's really kind of dark. Uh, it's really hard to see when they're in the, uh, in, in the bike lane at night. Um, <clears throat> so in contrast, if a trash can is like left in the roadway, SJP, PD would usually react instantly and move it away uh, because it's considered a road hazard. So um, perhaps we can put reflective stripes on them. It's, it should be pretty cheap uh, as we roll out these pilot programs. Um, thank you so much. I, I yield my time. Thank you. And back to the committee. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, let's start with uh, Councilmember Foley. 
Thank you for that presentation. I really like to hear about our recycling program and how our diversion rate is, is going up. When I first read the report, I wasn't sure if diversion was good or bad, but now I realize we're diverting it from landfill, so that's a good thing. Do we have a target in mind that we'd like to reach for diversion? Thank you, Councilor. I mean, aside from 100%, of course, but a re let, let me rephrase, realistic target. I mean, honestly, zero waste is our goal. And, you know, whether that's achievable or not, uh, I think time will tell, but that certainly is um, our aspiration. Thank you. You know, it's, I've, I've brought this up many times before that it's really difficult to know what is recyclable, what isn't recyclable, and the things that were five years ago are no longer, and we just have to keep reminding ourselves. I recently had to get a replacement uh, trash can, and I got one with the lid on top that has the label that says what's recyclable and what isn't. So that's really, really helpful, plus the new design is really cool too. Um, I do have, so I thank you for that, and I, I think any time that we have an opportunity to educate our community is, is helpful to remind them what is and isn't recyclable. Um, I have a question about 13, uh, AB 1383, uh, or is it SB, I don't know, whatever, 1383, you know what I mean. Are there violations for us not reaching the goals, are, are we penalized? And if so, what's the penalty and how's that implemented? Well, thank you, I'll start and then Valerie, if you can think about what those penalties are. Uh, the, uh, the state does have enforcement authority and, uh, and they have indicated uh, that if uh, municipalities are not moving forward in, um, in an appropriate manner that they would, um, they would leverage those, uh, those penalties. And do you know about how much they are? I do not. But it is a very broad, um, multifaceted uh, regulations. So there is a variety of um, different types of penalties that, that may apply in a lot of different areas. Um, I'm really pleased to say that San Jose has, um, in large parts, has already been meeting those regulations, even prior to the, the um, regulations going into effect. So. Um, We've been working very closely with the state on ensuring we're headed in the right directions on the other areas where we have a little more, more room for growth. And um, the state has reassured us that um, statewide they're going to be working more on ensuring implementation rather than taking enforcement actions in these first several years. Okay, good, good to know. Thank you very much for your presentation. With that, I will move acceptance of the report. Okay, thank you. Um, and thank you. Uh, Carrie, Valerie, and Jenny for the report. As you know, I always love talking trash. Um, sorry, I'll make that joke every time I think I'm saying that. <laughs> um, just, just a couple of quick questions. So the goal that you said that we have right now is 60% diversion. Is that right? Did you say 60 or did I hear that right? The um, most well, recent results were 64% diversion. Oh, that's results. But I, So we did we have a target though, right? I mean, I know our goal is 100% obviously, but... Um, do we have a target that we're sort of saying we're, it's, we're, we're successful if we're above that target? So we're, um, obviously the baseline is the state mandate. And then, and then as we said, our, our aspiration is 100%, um, but we're not um, budgeting in a fashion that we would get to 100% that quickly. So we're, we're being rational about incremental progress. Um, but Valerie, is there a time that you could see us getting to 80%? 
maybe. <laughs> no pressure. With, yeah. Within my uh, lifetime. Um, so I would yeah, say I probably 75 percent is Again. a good yeah. is a good okay. target that we think would be achievable in the next little bit. And, and is there an explanation as to why our commercial numbers are as low as they are? Yes, we've uh, talked about that I think a couple times of the last couple of um, annual reports where we made some um, significant changes to the commercial agreements a couple of years ago. I think that was in um, those were implemented in uh, 2020 and that uh, changed the way some of those numbers were calculated and we're still working through those those changes. So material that used to be processed at um, one of the material recovery facilities is now being uh, directly hauled to uh, the zero waste to energy de um, development facility for um, anaerobic digestion so that you know, immediately that's the wet material the organics um, and they are able to make energy out of that so that's it's a good thing and at the same time we're still working through some of those changes to continue to make improvements and increase the diversion there and I would add that compared to other cities, our commercial sector is performing very well. Valerie, do you have any insight into other local or uh, state jurisdictions? I don't. Sorry. Okay. So recall when we made when we can, when we franchised the um, the commercial sector in 2012, and we brought it all under one one franchise, and that made um, a dramatic difference. I think we went from about 20% diversion to 50, 60% on that day that it flipped. Um, and then now it's fine-tuning capacity of facilities and um, and then working with the businesses in such a fashion that we can improve diversion without adversely impacting business. When when garbage is collected at, I mean, at they have they still they have separated at most of our commercial places as well. It's it's or is it all commingled? Um, they have the ability to have separated material. So the commercial system is is uh, slightly different from the residential commercial or the residential system that I think we're all sort of accustomed to. So they have what's what are called wet bins and dry bins. So their wet bins are all the organics. Um, that includes paper and um, cardboard. And then the dry bins are recyclables and sort of everything else. Um, the dry material is what gets sorted at the um, material recovery facility. Um, and recyclables are recovered from that, that stream. They also have the ability to have a third bin, which we call a customized bin. So if it's a business that produces a lot of cans and bottles or cardboard, um, they can further source separate down, which is great. It keeps their materials um, a lot cleaner and, and it's already separated. Okay, I was just wondering, so do we have, also do we have um, different, I mean, we have incentives for residents and we're supposed to actually you know, give people notice if they don't separate effectively. Is there a similar accountability system for commercial? We have um, environmental services staff and also Republic services staff that work with our businesses um, uh, directly and provide right sizing um, and uh, ability to adjust their service levels that they need um, for better billing and better service and overall better separation. Okay. Anyway, I was surprised for a couple few reasons. I mean, obviously I know that green waste when they bring in the commercial garbage, they want to recycle as much as they can. And so I was surprised that, that to hear that the number's that low. And also, I guess I, I'm curious about whether we think that, and because we've kind of trained residents in our city to be good at recycling and to have to recycle, is there something about people when they're in their commercial environment that makes them not care as much um, about it? Um, and I guess that I mean, also it occurred to me, is there, is there a different type of material that's being thrown away at commercial sites that isn't recyclable maybe than versus at homes? So I was just 
anyway, I don't know if there's any thoughts on any of those things or just, anyway, just, I was, there, there's, there, there's a lot to that question. And <laughs> there, uh, you know, behavior at work is, is definitely different. Um, the way Republic incentivizes the commercial sector is um, the cleaner the material is, the better the rates they get. So there certainly is a motivator, but, um, but the businesses also have to evaluate the staff time it takes to kind of carry that out and the space constraints that they have and the frequency of pickups. Um, but Republic has their own customer service team in addition to our inspectors. And so, um, so where, where uh, the commercial sector clients need help, uh, they are able to um, to get that. We did have a, obviously a period during COVID where that was a bit uh, a bit challenging, uh, but Republic is uh, is back and fully staffed and ready to do that. Um, every business is really different from manufacturing to you know um, I'm sorry from you know a restaurant to a hotel to a bar to CVS, um, and so it's really looking at what what they need and and what makes sense. But um, I think I think we're getting back on track, and the numbers the numbers indicate that, and so we would uh, expect that to continue in the right direction. Councilman Fuller, did you want to take another? I I was just going to comment as someone who used to rent office space, we would have the recycle bin and the non-recycle bin, but at the end of the day, the two bins were combined in the large garbage can and put in the dumpster. So. I think that happens more often than not. In fact, I wonder if for sure at the city, our recycle boxes are put in a recycle bin and we're actually recycling that paper too, or are we commingling them? Our staff work closely with Public Works and there have been some hiccups along the way. And so we're relabeling the, um, the, uh, the receptacles in, uh, in City Hall and other city buildings. Um, sometimes the postings were on the wall and then um, the janitors move them around and it gets all confusing. So, uh, so we're, gonna, we're gonna work to resolve that, but there are separate bins. Uh, and so the, uh, if it's in the recycling uh, bin it, on the floor, it should be in the recycling bin in the basement and we'll continue to, uh, to work with Public Works. I appreciate that, Carrie, but it's really not hard to know which is the recycle bin and which one isn't. They have different colors. I know the signs may be different, but we are kind of used to it and we're adults. We ought to be able to know the difference even if the bin gets switched around. I'm just the lid, I'm just saying. And I appreciate that you, you can say that and I can't. So. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say maybe, I mean, I, I'm sure you do some of this and maybe Republic does it as well, but we do a lot of education to our residents. Maybe there needs to be some educational component or some effort towards at commercial at sites or businesses to, to sort of encourage recycling as well so that people are paying more attention to it. Yeah, I think, uh, I think recycling is a lifelong learning process. So yeah, we'll, we'll continue in that direction. Quick question on the larger garbage cans. Obviously our goal is to have a cleaner stream that comes in the recycling. I'm wondering if we're gonna have any way of measuring whether just having a larger can just means more of the recycling will end up in garbage because they have more space there. Do we, will we be able to tell? We will, and so um, but the initial study, you know, so there are um, 450,000 containers in our residential stream, and so we don't want to replace that, even 200,000 of them, without a lot of thought because they are expensive. And so, um, as you know, we like, we like data a lot, and the data didn't show us enough to say that it was worth the cost of all those carts. Um, and so the way we do the, uh, the route assessments 
we're measuring both what's in the garbage fraction and then is the um, is the recycling fraction cleaner. The reality is the recycling carts are um, so contaminated now that I wouldn't expect to see the reverse, um, although the garbage is also back end sorted. So we would collect a can and bottle if someone um, accidentally put it in the black cart. Okay, yeah, that's good to know. Thank you. Um, yeah, and of course, there's the, the part of me that's the that's that talks about reduce, reuse, thinks about the recycling, all of those recycling carts, all those garbage carts that are going to have to be discarded when you give new garbage carts out. So anyway, all right, well, thank you. I think we don't have any more comments, so we'll move to a vote to accept the item. Okay, motion carries 4-0 with Davis absent. So now we're on to our second item on the agenda today. We have uh, citywide pavement condition funding maintenance program uh, delivery status report. We'll uh, let John Risto kick this off. Thank you, Councilmember John Risto, Director of Transportation. And uh, yes, we're going to be reviewing the pavement strategy and plan for the next couple of years here with today with me is rick scott deputy director and frank farshidi division manager responsible for paving and we have a powerpoint and we're just going to kick it off indeed we do thanks john my name is rick scott deputy director of dot over the infrastructure maintenance division uh, every year we come to the TNE committee to explain our progress with the payment program this was especially important in the years we had no funding but it's still very important to keep everyone apprised of what's happening now that we have a much more well-funded program. Uh, so the first slide we usually start on is this one right here. It's an overall condition update on where we stand. Uh, as we've talked about over the years, we've got major streets and the local and neighborhood streets in those two respective rows. Um, major streets have stayed in good condition. Again, uh, PCI is pavement condition index. For, it's a score from zero to 100, uh, 100 being perfect. So our major streets are at 78. They stayed at 78. Uh, but our improvement citywide, we've gone from 71 last year, which was the highest we've ever had, to 73, which is even higher, uh, obviously. Um, and we're adding two points to the local and neighborhood streets, which really has driven, but that's measure T-funded work, and that's driven the improvement. We also like to show a report card to try to make things uh, easier to translate. Uh, a lot of stability over in the major streets from last year. Nearly 75% of our streets are in good to excellent condition. Um, but when you look over in the local streets, Frank and I were talking about this right before this meeting. When we started Measure T, I think that A and B category was like 22, 23%. So there's been a, been a huge improvement. We have 56% of our local neighborhood streets in good or excellent condition, um, which means that the Measure T dollars have made a huge difference. And again, you can see the respective PCIs next to the total mileage of the network up there. Um, we still have plenty of work to do, and, and that's what we're going to be doing over the next few years. We also, a uh, longstanding thing that we've uh, shown to help indicate just the, the vast scope of our work is the pavement pyramid. Uh, so the apex of it is our typical potholes program management, just kind of our fixed costs. And then we look at our major streets and then the local and neighborhood streets. And so I would just drive your attention to the upper right box. The overall, again, there's 2,500 miles. We've got a PCI of 73. We'll talk about the annual need here in a couple of minutes and uh, $369 million one-time backlog. That, that title maybe could be changed to just the need. Uh, and again, that's defined as streets under a PCI of 50 that need to be resurfaced or streets that have not been maintained in eight years. 
Um, so that, that's the backlog, but that, that is not necessarily correlated to our PCI, which again is the highest it's ever been, and that number of that backlog is the lowest it's ever been, which I'll show you. Um, I'll just also drive your attention to the bottom uh, right part of the pyramid that, that has a one-time backlog of $246 million, PCI of 33. Those are still the, those are the streets we have not yet gotten to on Measure T, and so most of the backlog that we have throughout the entire city is on those streets. The rest of the city is actually in pretty great condition right now. Uh, this, we also like to see where we've come from. Uh, Frank and I joined the city right around, or joined the team right around 2016. Uh, we were PCI 62, so again, we're PCI of 63. Uh, measure T was 2020, so that's when stuff really started to, to climb again. And SB1 and a lot of our other funding sources came to be in about 2018, 2019, that time frame. So there's been a consistent, steady trend of improvement, especially noteworthy over the last few years. And then the 10-year funding status, so this, uh, I think this makes it pretty clear. We talked about Measure T. We talked about how it goes through 2028. You can pretty clearly see what happens here when Measure T goes away. Um, fortunately, you see we have VTA Measure B, which is the little blue part of the uh, bar chart. And then we have our state funding. All of these levels are much higher than they were 10 years ago. So we will have a solid program when Measure T is gone. But it will in inevitably lead to a decline in our pavement condition, which will, as described in the memo, and we can go into more detail later. Um, so there's a 70.2 million annual funding required to maintain our current PCI. Luckily, over the next 10 years, we have an average uh, funding of about 71.8. That's in the memo. So we, the, the Measure T and the higher appropriations and some of the other categories drive that higher average. But as you can see, that does go down. Even, even though the average is higher in fiscal year 27-28, the annual funding level does go down to about 54 million. And that's, that's pretty much our, our steady state. Uh, once Measure T is expended. So that'll allow for a pretty solid program. Again, when, when Frank and I started with this team, the program was at about uh, 13 to 25 million a year. Uh, so it's, it's pretty solid, but again, we, we know what'll happen over time if the roads are not invested in continuously. Uh, and then this, this is actually, if, you, if you're looking for a Measure T uh, plug, <laughs> we have a pretty solid one here. So in 2018, um, we showed a, a, a trend line where we ran a 10-year projection to see what our, our maintenance backlog would be 10 years from now, or 10 years from 2018. We saw that was $1.1 billion and was continuing to trend upwards. Every year, we run that again. We're not gonna, we don't show every single one. It would get pretty busy. Uh, but for comparison's sake, the green one is the one we ran last year, and the blue one is the one we ran this year. So as you can see, our, by 2027, 2028, our one-time backlog, we said it was $369 million this year. It will continue to go down until 2028 when it'll hit 165 million, which is again over 930 million lower than what it would have been had Measure T not existed. So it's been made a huge impact on our residents' lives and uh, obviously in our pavement condition. Um, so with that, I will hand it over to our division manager, Frank Farshidi, who leads the pavement team. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Rick. I'll start from uh, the slide. So uh, my name is Frank Farshidi, pavement maintenance division manager. Uh, our pavement production history is shown in this current slide. So the overall uh, trend, as you can see, is going upwards. I wanted to highlight a couple of points and explain a couple of uh, milestones. So in 2019, and uh, you see that spike of 289 miles that we were able to do. So that's when VTA measure B actually was in the lawsuit and on hold, and we were able to uh, combine two years of work into one year and that falling year, which was 2019. So our actual residential work started then, but you know when we started 
complementing that funding with Measure T, uh, we, uh, we started with doing the war streets, so those require more resurfacing or more expensive, so the mileage has, as you see, from 2019 to 2021 uh, went down because those were the uh, first few years that we were dealing with a lot of uh, really bad streets. But since then, the mileage has gone up the, uh, because uh, as we are approaching towards the uh, end goal, which is 20, by 2028, uh, we want to be able to maintain all of our residential streets. That uh, mileage is going to vary, and again, that's because the treatment is uh, it's based on the need of the streets. And the, on average, we are now in a position that we are maintaining better streets and we're doing more pavement preservations. So for uh, 2024, so this is uh, showing our pipeline of projects that we will be uh, doing for uh, this year. So uh, total, we are uh, going to do 33 projects. So the breakdown of that is uh, 12 uh, of these projects are on major streets and 21 are on residential streets. And uh, we also uh, have been using the strategy or delivery strategy of uh, using minor uh, public works contracts. So we have 21 minor uh, projects uh, for this year and 12 uh, major. So the minor projects are uh, less than 1.2. Uh, usually we can buy, uh, you know, the, the size of those projects are around uh, 650 to $700,000 and we, uh, specifically procure and uh, attract small local businesses uh, for, for the prep work that we do for our payment program. Our uh, st delivery strategy remains the same based on neighborhood uh, streets and uh, zones throughout the city. So we have found that very efficient way of delivering our program. We will still be using that. Besides that, uh, we also consider uh, uh, a, a range of criteria as outlined in this slide, as you can see. We uh, consider the geographic spread. We also uh, look at the equity. We have that as a performance measure tool uh, now that we uh, track every year, and uh, we also use it as a planning in the planning stage of our program. This slide uh, just gives you an idea of what uh, uh, we treated last year, uh, last year's in 2023. So uh, just to highlight two of the main uh, treatments that we do in our program. So the, uh, the pictures on the top are uh, typical examples of what we call pavement preservation strategy or ceiling treatment, uh, some before and after. So these are streets that are uh, on average in better conditions, PCI anywhere from 60 and above. Uh, we, uh, we are able to uh, effectively uh, treat them with that strategy. It's a lot less expensive compared to the bottom pictures. As you can see, this, uh, that's when the streets are in a worse condition. The cracks are interconnected. Those are, uh, there are a lot of alligator cracks, and they go deep down, and uh, it requires a more major rehab, uh, which we call it resurfacing, but there are different treatments in that category as well. Our local and neighborhood streets program, so for 2024, we are uh, still uh, going to do five, uh, 15 minor projects, and six of those are major uh, projects. These are, you know, uh, again, um, uh, by major, we mean, uh, you know, projects that are anywhere from 12 to $15 million. We uh, follow the public works procurement process. Uh, we're still at the, you know, 
doing the low bid process and uh, we attract uh, different contractors and we were able to do our work. So for this year's program, we will be maintaining 182 miles with a total funding of 56.5 for residential program. So on this slide, we wanted to uh, highlight uh, our, a couple of uh, strategies or innovations that we've been doing in the area of uh, sustainability and uh, green infrastructure programs. So our strategy has been to uh, pilot uh, actual uh, practical and proven uh, technologies that are available first, learn uh, lessons as we go, and then go into full implementation if it is a successful program. So the first uh, one that we have on that, on this slide, so low carbon cure, uh, we started piloting this uh, back in 2022 uh, on small scale with, uh, with our local supplier and contractors. It, uh, it turned out to be a successful uh, one. So we were able to procure a specification that actually is now 50% uh, less uh, uh, carbon, uh, uh, has a 50% less uh, carbon footprint compared to a conventional. And for this, uh, for the pilot actually, we, uh, we received an award from the local ACI, American Concrete Institute uh, chapter, uh, for the, uh, the first agency, public agency, to uh, procure such specification. So in 2023, we uh, implemented the full program for our concrete curb ramps, and we built you know, more than 10,000 of these every year. So uh, all of our specifications have been updated to this new uh, 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 environmental-friendly procurement process. The, the one that we are looking into uh, uh, piloting this year is uh, the second one called permeable interlocking concrete pavement. So with this one, we uh, hope to uh, maximize two, uh, two, two, uh, two objectives, which is you know, uh, have a long life pavement as well as uh, address the stormwater runoff. So it is a, it's going to be a pervious system and it's meant for local residential streets with, that don't have existing infrastructure for stormwater. And we have identified a street, it's uh, Catherine Court actually, that we're gonna be uh, piloting this on. And um, again, our expectation is to you know, uh, learn from it. And there, there might be a few lessons, but uh, uh, hopefully we can do more widespread implementation of this. So with that, uh, I'll uh, conclude the presentation. So the, uh, the, you know, our investments in the streets definitely have yielded results. Uh, as Rick mentioned, we are now at a uh, very good category PCI of 78 for the entire city. Our uh, local streets continue to improve. So definitely those have uh, a little bit more catch up to do because we started a little bit later. Uh, but uh, they're also looking uh, much better so compared to uh, 60 uh, that we had in, uh, back in the days uh, since 2018. We are at PCI of 69 as of end of last year. Our backlogs have uh, significantly decreased. And uh, one uh, point that we wanted to definitely uh, make across is our future uh, payment funding uh, remains uh, uh, unpredicted and unstable. So we, uh, after the Measure T sun uh, sunsets in 2028, 
and then also with the electrification that's uh, you know statewide electrification our gas tax we uh, anticipate to go down so that's a, an area of concern and as a, a reference measure t is currently 30 percent of our uh, funding that will uh, sunset in 2028. We have 2,519 miles of streets. Our goal still is to uh, maintain 10% uh, of that every year because we, you know, we've figured that is the rate of deterioration of our network. And if we can stay ahead of that, we will be able to keep our network in a very good condition for a long time, uh, long term. And with that, we're uh, happy to answer any questions. All right. Well, thank you for the, the great report and the uh, great work on the pavement projects. Um, we're going to start with public comment. We will go to Zoom. Jordan Muldo. Jordan Muldo, District 3, had some questions and comments. So it's my understanding that when a road is being repaved, uh, if it appears on the 2025 bike plan with a Class 4 bikeway, then that is supposed to be installed. And I believe that that is happening. Um, but is it not also the case that a class four quick build should also be installed if it's called for in the bike plan? Uh, because as far as I can tell, the roads that have been repaved over the past two years, some of them do have class four called out in the 2025 bike plan, uh, but I don't think any of them have actually been installed. Um, in fact, in the last uh, two years, it looks like we barely installed uh, 0.4 miles of class four bike lanes across the whole city. Um, so I hope that we could do these class four quick builds uh, during these repavements. I know it's possible because Caltrans is doing it on El Camino during its repaving project this year. Um, secondly, uh, a lot of the repavings that have happened, I've seen these letter G's spray painted on the asphalt indicating locations where green paint or thermoplastic is supposed to be installed. And months later, there's still these Gs and no actual green material. Um, and so I, I'm wondering why that isn't installed at the time of the repaving and the restriping. Um, I really think it should be installed before we can actually consider the project complete. Um, and a lot of new bike lanes, people still use them to park in. I feel like the iconography is insufficient. I feel like a lot of the new bike lanes are just a stripe and maybe a small sign on the side of the road. I feel like we need to make the words bike lane and the stencil printed much more prominently and more regularly, um, and uh, along with enforcement and red curbs. Thank you. Blair Beekman. Hi, thank you, uh, Blair Beekman. I just wanted to quickly comment and thank you that you talked about the concepts of uh, permeable, permeable pavement, I think is what it is. I'm interested to learn that concept and what exactly that means. And uh, I think that's a really important concept, the feature of our, of our as part of a whole, whole process of uh, electric car use and, and moving towards a more sustainable green future. Good luck how we can talk about permeable permeable pavement ideas more often and what it can really uh, work towards and signify. And I think I heard that Measure T uh, oversight uh, or the committee is slowly going to be uh, ending over the next few years, if I don't know if I heard that correctly or not. But, but just a reminder that uh, as Measure T bond issues ha has, has been a good process, uh, the, the public uh, 
commission process has been a good process. Uh, it's offered public oversight and accountability practices that uh, it's really important that we've done that. And I thank you for that. And I, I hope we're, we're interested in always wanting to look for ways to offer better openness and accountability with the public in our practices. Thank you. How, Jen Lee? Hi, uh, my name is Hajin Lee. I'm from District 6, and I'd just like to thank the city staff for doing this. I actually see the roads being paved, and I see new bike lanes being added as the roads get resurfaced, so I really appreciate uh, the work. I yield the rest of my time. Thank you, and back to the committee. All right, uh, Councilmember Candelas. Thank you, Chair. Um, first of all, I just want to start off uh, by by thanking staff again, um, you know DOT is is uh, one of those one of those departments that you know residents um, measure success from their driveway, and so um, you know what what better way to to, to get um, uh, good constituent services than to repave roads and, and to be out there and, and you all are, are certainly doing a good job working with uh, not just our our uh, wonderful San Jose staff but with contractors. And uh, those folks involved in the actual repaving because it's a lot of work over 250 miles over 240 miles I think of, of repaving roads and or um, treatment for, for our, our roads um, and especially I, I want to uh, highlight uh, slide seven on the um, of the presentation on the the cost to recover um, and and the investment that that San Jose uh, residents made uh, to uh, invest in that deferred backlog because that investment now uh, is um, you know exponential if you look at the out years of look at 2028 look at 2030 uh, that number is is it, it grows so so that investment now uh, which um, you know uh, is is substantial uh, is ultimately a cost saver and, and, and I'm really glad to see this because uh, a lot of people are um, uh, you know, you know, have questions on how much are we really investing, um, and is it worth it? But this this slide alone uh, is uh, it does a great job of explaining that. So so thank you thank you for showing that. Um, and you know, there's there's something in the report that um, I also want to highlight is the equity index um, or the equity pri uh, priority communities, the EPC, and having. Uh, I'm excited to see the the introduction of a performance measurement. Um, that that will compare our conditions um, with those EPCs, those equity uh, communities, and and not with regards to the local street pavement program. So, so I'm excited to see that um, going forward. Um, and so, one quick question is, you know, how are, how are we looking at staff to address uh, those those streets that we have maybe provided treatment in the last, let's say, decade, which is relatively fairly fairly new, but like, for example, 2015. Um, you know, there's a, the example I'll give is in my district on San Felipe Road. We, we did, uh, I, I don't know if it was a resurfacing or a, a, a slurry seal in, 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 that, in that section of my, of, of my district. And um, uh, if you drive down it now, uh, re it's a PCI of 65, but residents will think it's like a 30 or 40. And, you know, rightfully so, it's riddled with potholes. Um, but you know, I'm curious to hear staff's perspective on how do we, how are we going to address uh, those 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 streets, and where is that going to fall in the prioritization um, of the schedule uh, uh, going forward, given the 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 
the drop we're going to see after after Measure T, and possibly you know with less gas tax dollars because of the increase in electrification. It's an easy well, question, right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> real easy. John Risto again. So if that was 2015, it's coming up on its 10-year life if we were doing a ceiling on that. So it's on our books to actually then come back up again. And we determine every year what the, the we, we base it on the treatment or the condition of that roadway, among many other things. But if that one's coming up, then that's going to be one that we'll be picking up. See, that one wasn't in our program. We really started this whole Measure T thing. Right. 2018 or so so that's outside of that so we're probably coming up for another uh, treatment coming up in the near future it might be on the our five-year look ahead I'll let Frank answer that he probably has everything memorized but it's been about 10 years so it's coming up okay well thank you thank you uh, uh, director so or you know I could also take my 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 question offline and, and and we can certainly talk about it but it's that example uh, of how are we looking at you know, 10, 10, 10 years with treatment and or uh, city activity, uh, it can be considered, you know, good by some standards, but for our residents who drive on these roads and uh, including myself, you know, it's it's like, oh, there's these potholes that, that could be addressed and should be addressed. Um, not to say that you're not, but I, I'm curious, I, I was curious more to understand the philosophy of how we're approaching these uh, these segments of roads that we may have or may, may have not been uh, working on over the last decade, specifically years five through 10. Sure. So kind of as John said, you know, there's a reason pavement's never fixed. You know, the second you put it down, it started, starts depreciating. So that's why we have our preventive maintenance system, our pavement maintenance system that tracks these things. And I think we, we do describe in the memo there are a number of permutations. There's a number of different factors that are taken in a, into account when you're calculating when another street has its turn. But as John said, generally eight to 10 years is when we want to be maintaining a street if we've already touched it. So okay. certainly happy to engage with your staff on that particular road and any other ones. But the other factors we consider, again, equity priority communities, you know, is it, is it, is it in one of those areas? Um, are there bikeways we're looking to kind of have a nexus with? Are we getting a lot of complaints about or, or are there a lot of potholes along it, like you said? Um, so there are a number of factors that go into it. And then, of course, we engage with the council offices once we kind of have a sense of what we think the next, you know, now it's a five-year plan. It used to be a three-year plan. Um, so, yeah, we're happy to take San Felipe in particular offline with you, but I mean, that's generally the philosophy I think we take when we look at it. What's a good maintenance practice for this roadway? And what other, uh, what other objectives can we achieve by selecting the street? Yeah, and if I may add to that, uh, we have uh, a program for inspecting streets, right? So that's how we actually start. So, uh, like Rick said, pavements start uh, deteriorating as soon as you put them down, and depending on traffic. What really deteriorates pavements is truck traffic. So streets you know are going to vary in life you know we might get five years in one uh, street or 10 plus in others uh, our uh, pci is based on that so mtc requires us to actually inspect every three years on major streets we have a uh, more proactive program for that we uh, do every two years so those pcis get updated and our current contract with uh, with a consultant who does that is actually ending this year so we're going to go out to uh, procure that uh, uh, pretty soon here and we're we're actually excited about that because there might be technologies that we are able to actually do it sooner than two years so we uh, if we can uh, get the entire network so we can get more more of these inspection more often so we know where you know the streets are deteriorating faster we also uh, gather uh, a another index uh, 
right quality. It's an IRI, International Roughness Index. It's specifically what you mentioned. So that's what people really feel like, right? I mean, they're driving, they really don't know what PCI means, but they want to know how smooth they are. So it measures the smoothness. So we also gather that and we look at that, so. All right, no, no, that, 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 that help explain, explain, that helps ex to explain um, how, just our, our overall process. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you all are, are thinking through that, the, especially around the, the five to 10 year mark, which is usually about the lifespan of it. So yeah. no, I appreciate that. And um, you know, I, I've also, uh, you know, had conversations, not just about San Felipe, but, but the Meadow Fair neighborhood that just got resurfaced. And we saw cracks in, the, in those streets and um, you know, something I learned is we also have, you know, warranty periods based mm -hmm. on the contractors that we hire to be able to, you know, have some accountability with our residents who think they got shortchanged on on the work and the quality of the work in their neighborhood. And so I, I no, I appreciate uh, staff's diligence on that and, and making sure that we're focusing um, on on quality outputs and quality um, a work product for our residents. Uh, the last thing I'll, I'll touch on, and, and Blair kind of. Uh, mentioned it. This the the, the permeable the PICP. Um, where's that? How how are we going to do pavers and where are we going to get them and how can I get them in my district? That's <laughs> so so first thing, Councilmember Candelas, San Felipe's plan for 2026. Oh, um, cool. John was able to look that up in our handy story map. Um, and then the the second point, you know, I think there are particular and you know Frank is Frank is a PhD, um, but there are particular elements that make Catherine Court a compelling candidate for this treatment, you know, a big piece of it is that it's a concrete road. There's not many of those in San Jose and they last a really, really long time. Um, the reason it's pretty challenging to do that on asphalt pavement is because, you know, you talk about ceiling, that's a preventive measure that we have. If you, if you do these permeable pavers, you can't seal that street anymore. So the, the preventive maintenance doesn't, isn't able to happen. But if it replaces a concrete street, it actually makes a lot of sense because we're not going back there probably for a generation regardless. Whether it's concrete, whether it's a permeable pavement solution, both of them are going to have roughly the same outcome. So that, that's why we're exploring. It's the first time we've done it. Um, so we're going to learn something and, you know, hopefully it goes pretty smoothly, but we'll learn something either way. Uh, and then, yes, our goal, I think, would be to find other candidates. And most of our, vast majority of our streets are not concrete, uh, but there might be some others out there that we could try this on. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, right? This yeah. is the first time my, my light flashes, so um, I'm, with that, I'll, I'll just move acceptance of the report and, uh, and uh, end with a sincere appreciation for the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Councilmember Foley. Thank you for the report. I always like my annual meeting with your team on what streets are going to be paved in my district and seeing the end coming to the conclusion of all of the streets in District 9 and the whole city, I think it, it's great. And as Councilmember Candela said, it is one of the things that our residents really can visually see. They see first how bad their street is in their minds. Although if they tra travel to other parts of the city, they may see streets that are much worse condition. But they also know that the streets are going to be paved. So I also, uh, appreciate your website and the ability of our residents to go and see when their streets may be paved and uh, how, how far out they have to, to wait because that does give them some pause uh, to know when it's going to be. But if it's next year, they can wait. If it's two years, they can still have a little bit of patience and they understand it's coming when they see their streets on the list. That's uh, and unfortunately, my street isn't there yet, but it will be. It has to be, because it's at the end, right? Um, 
The other thing is that I really appreciate the report, uh, Rick, about the minor projects and the major projects. And the minor projects, that's where we're able to utilize smaller contractors, is that correct? And and utilize, rather than doing everything as a big project, we've broken it up into bits, correct. into pieces, so that benefits smaller businesses. That is correct. That's great, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Uh, I, again, I always really enjoy hearing this report, and I ha but I have one question for you. We've had a lot of rain over the last mm -hmm. couple of days, so how is that gonna affect potholes and our streets? It will. <laughs> we, we, we've, uh, I, think, I think I saw the report, we had about 30 potholes called in. Um, so usually those are handled in about two, two days is usually what it takes. But yeah, there certainly will be impacts and we probably don't fully know what those are yet. So uh, luckily we've, you know, this is a, it's the wet season. We're gonna have probably a lot more potholes, um, but then once we get out of, and again, our teams will respond quickly. But once we get to the dry season, we can kind of regather ourselves, look at what options we might have. And, um, you know, again, we've got our pothole team, we've got a patching team, and then, and then we, we have a lot of things we can do, so. That's great. The, this report is really good news as far as the backlog uh, being addressed and what we have going forward. So thank you very much. Uh, I just want one question. It's about um, utility work on streets. So when we do um, paving, I know that there's a <clears throat> strategy to say we're not, we don't allow utilities to dig into that street for 12 months. Usually on the first day after 12 months, I'm, I'm probably kidding there, but soon after we often see utility come through, um, cut trenches in the street. Um, I, we just had that happen on Hostetter now, a whole series of trenches. You know, it's been a little over a year since it was paved and people are contacting me and asking about it. Um, I just wanna know more details about what to tell the public about it. And also, you know, make sure I understand what, in what condition contractors are supposed to leave the street after they do that, given that the streets have already gone through the repaving. Thanks for the council member, or thanks for the question, council member Cohen, um, Chair Cohen, sorry. Um, so when we have, uh, you know, the utility cuts, we do have a two-year moratorium that is generally in effect for resurfaced streets. If a street is sealed, that moratorium doesn't apply. Is it a, is it a one-year if it's sealed or is there no moratorium at all? So there's no moratorium at all for uh, preventively maintained streets. So that, that process is managed through Public Works Department, but we do work very closely with the utility section and kind of make sure that if there is, like very rarely, I think, is there an exception to the two-year moratorium. It does happen from time to time. You know, an example would be like a, a water project that Valley Water needs to urgently do, you know, so they'll have to break moratorium. There's certain, there's certain fiber uh, projects that have to take precedence, so that does happen from time to time. Um, they are committed to leave, uh, a really good example is in Monterey, they did have to break, on northbound Monterey they had to break moratorium, they, they did, I believe they did superior restoration, so they really, they made it basically like new, the section that they did. It, it's not everywhere where they do that, but typically they will leave a, um, they're required to leave a solid patch in place, but there's no doubt that whenever a utility cuts into our pavement, it's going to decrease the condition. So it's something we, we continuously try to maintain. I know we are having conversations with uh, the Deputy Director Jay Guevara uh, and utilities to come up with a good process going forward to manage this and then may, maybe disincentivize um, future potential utility breaks. We also do have a process where we coordinate um, the, the meeting we have with you, you know, every year. We've had that with the utilities about four or five months before that. Um, so they are nominally aware of our, of our program, just, you know, they're big organizations, sometimes things aren't directly translated where they need to go. So when those come up, we absolutely have to manage those challenges. Okay, thank you for the answer. Uh, unless I, I don't see any other hands, so let's move to a vote on this item.
All right, motion carries 4-0. So now we're on to the third item on our agenda, and thank you all for that report. The third item on our agenda is a Deardon Integrated Station Status Report, and I guess, John, you're Thank you again, box. Council Member. Um, yeah, we, we have an update. Ramdas Madhu is going to do that presentation for us, give an update on Deardon Integrated Station. Afternoon, Chair and uh, Council people. All right, um, I'm going to go through an update on the Deardon Station and Airport Connector projects, uh, mostly on the Deardon uh, project. We're going to be coming back uh, later this uh, uh, calendar or this fiscal year, uh, diving deeper into Airport Connector. Um, as many of you know, um, Deardon Station is one of the most important transit nodes um, on the entire West Coast. Um, it already has more. Uh, converging services uh, there than any other station in the Bay Area, um, and we're expected to see uh, major additions with BART and high-speed rail adding to that mix. And it is also the gateway um, uh, for both the high-speed rail to the south as well as um, in the South County and beyond. Um, yeah, and we're also expected to see a, a great deal of population growth, both on our own projections as well as the regional projections. Um, that will support the station. A lot of that growth may happen directly around the station. Um, as you may remember, um, Deardon Station um, has already uh, been going through a, a lengthy redesign process uh, that started with the Deardon Integrated Station concept work. Um, this diagram uh, represents the output of that work. Uh, where three major gestures towards um, what a final redesign would look like were made. Um, one uh, was looking at elevating the tracks, um, and this creates um, a, a great rail operational environment, and importantly, it creates uh, an urban connectivity project, helping stitch together um, the communities around the station. It also creates a, um, a station that becomes a place in itself, right? As we have seen around the world, uh, stations can be pretty incredible projects um, that help uh, um, neighborhoods become uh, much more vibrant um, through retail and other activation uh, type uses. Um, the, another piece of the uh, uh, decision making that was done there um, during DISC uh, was talking about two concourses, one on Santa Clara Street and one near San Fernando, uh, creating um, uh, optimal uh, passenger flows um, and an integrated station for more of the different neighborhoods around um, the station. And thirdly, uh, the decision was also made to keep uh, tracks mostly in their own and the current alignment. Um, there's some, uh, particularly to the, the north, a little bit of uh, track realignment that we're going to have to uh, work out, uh, but most of it is keeping within the current alignment. Now, work is ongoing currently um, uh, with the many partners at the station. Um, uh, to find what a next um, uh, iteration of this design work will be. These are the major elements um, that we're wrestling with right now uh, to try and pull together uh, what will be a very, uh, a very involved project. Everything from the PG&E substation, uh, which is just next to the station, uh, to the Deardon station, um, uh, which is uh, quite an old station and is involved in a lot of the electrical uh, upgrades that we're talking about in the city. Um, to how it's going to integrate with BART, Silicon Valley, um, light rail, airport connector, all of these kinds of things. There's a lot of different pieces uh, try to make a station successful. 
Um, one of the uh, pieces of work that we're uh, uh, working on with the public is what to do with the historic station building. Um, the historic station building um, is uh, a registered public landmark um, and could play a, a role in the future of the station. Uh, we're still trying to figure out if it can, um, uh, but right now we're, we're looking at some uh, uh, concepts that could keep it as part of the, um, uh, the San Fernando or Southern uh, concourse. Um, in particular, we're looking at how we might be able to reuse uh, the uh, station building that's out there. Um, on the left is the current alignment. Um, as many of you know, uh, you go in through uh, the, um, uh, the front of the building and, and to get to the, uh, the tracks, you have to go down through the ramp um, uh, to get out there. What we're looking at is if we can keep the front part of that building um, where the mural, is, the big uh, uh, well-known mural is um, and the old historic uh, waiting areas and see if we can open up um, uh, more throughput. Um, the building currently could not actually deal with the amount of folks that need to move through there. Um, and so what we would need to do is open up uh, what are currently the windows um, on the um, on the uh, north and south side of the uh, building um, and turn those into uh, pedestrian concourses as well, uh, bringing folks into the station and creating that capacity. Um, this project is currently, um, uh, yeah, this is, this is the, sorry, this is the uh, schedule uh, for the uh, joint policy advisory board meetings, which are kind of the, um, uh, the capstones of each of the major uh, workflows that are going on um, and we're heading right into a very exciting uh, portion of the project where we'll be bringing um, uh, the alternatives so all those uh, elements I just showed you we're starting to really dig in and, and start sharing information about what the thought is around those different elements um, and talking about what are the major development trajectories that we're looking at the other piece we're trying to figure out is how do you bring together high-speed rail uh, city of San Jose VTA um, uh, um, MTC and other partners um, into uh, Caltrain, of course. How do we bring them into an integrated development team? We've been able to do it um, uh, so far. We've got a really good working group across all of the agencies, um, but making that that much more solidified uh, will help the project progress faster and deal with some pretty complicated next steps, particularly engineering and environmental, as well as long-term governance. So we've been talking about that. Um, and in May, we're going to be bringing up to three different alternatives um, uh, to uh, the board um, to discuss uh, which direction we should really take for our, our, uh, our chosen option, uh, which we will expect to see more in August. Um, what we're trying to do now is uh, create enough uh, uh, concepts and designs um, to be able to take this work into that environmental process, which we expect to take about three years after all this. Um, so that we can then go hunt for the uh, dollars we'll need to deliver this project. Um, moving on to the uh, Deardon station to airport connector. Um, a little bit of background uh, overview here. Um, the airport connector is uh, uh, an exciting project where we're trying to uh, approach uh, transit development from a new uh, perspective. Uh, uh, both in terms of technology as well as business planning. Um, and uh, the physical uh, pieces of this are we're trying to connect Deardon Station with Terminal B 
at the airport as a primary uh, objective um, and as a secondary objective we're looking at whether an inter-terminal uh, or inter-facility airport circulator is also warranted in the project. Um, if you remember in January we did ask council to um, uh, give authorization to look at that inter-terminal uh, option um, and we're <coughs> now doing that. Um, we are currently in a pre-development agreement uh, with the San Jose Connection Partners um, and that is broken up into a multi-phase effort currently in phase one where we're looking at feasibility. How do we make sure that this, uh, this new technology we're looking at as well as this new uh, business practice um, uh, is actually viable? Um, we expect uh, that process to end uh, later this calendar year and expect uh, probably in early fall to bring back um, the report out of that feasibility um, uh, for council to consider as to whether we should progress into phase two um, and uh, keep moving this project forward. Um, out of phase one, uh, we expect a feasibility alignment, which we're just about done with, which is basically a, a first go at what an alignment would be so that we can create base engineering on top of it. Project management plan, uh, which would give us enough information to move from today, basically all the way to construction readiness as well as that feasibility report, which will tell us more about whether we think this new technology is uh, uh, gonna be viable and as whether, whether the numbers pencil out both on the public and private side of this project. Um, and that concludes my report. All right, thank you so, oh, is that the end of the whole report? Okay, thank you so much. Um, let's move on to public comment. Jordan Maldow. Uh, Jordan Moldau, District 3, uh, thank you for the report. Uh, it's a lot of exciting stuff. Um, you know, I definitely am encouraging you to, to, to keep as much of the historic building as possible. Very nice building, so thank you for working on that. Um, I'm One thing I really like in the, uh, the current plan is the fact that it connects uh, the two halves of West San Fernando Street back together uh, with a bike ped path. So thank you for that. Um, and I encourage you to keep that in future iterations of the plan. Um, in particular, definitely keep it as bike and pedestrian only um, and don't try to add automobiles into that undercrossing. Um, but yeah, definitely excited to see easier access between the two sides of the station via that West San Fernando extension. Um, and really looking forward to, you know, hopefully easier access via that corridor to the VTA light rail platform um, and perhaps all of the uh, Caltrain platforms as well. Um, let's see. In terms of uh, airport connector, I do wonder if the city, if VTA isn't going to do it, I wonder if the city could potentially investigate in the shorter term uh, before a, a a real connector is built, whether a bus could run between Deerdon and SJC, because I think it's it's really important to move SJC away from being so car-centric. Right now, it's really difficult to get to SJC without a car. So I think like a, a express shuttle that just runs between SJC and Deerdon could be very beneficial, or potentially a shuttle that runs between Metro Light Rail and SJC, and then people could take light rail uh, to Metro from Deerdon. Thank you. Blair Beekman. 
Hi, uh, Blair Beekman. Uh, thanks a lot for this item. Uh, I missed parts of it, so I, I, I didn't quite understand the San Fernando uh, bike only, pedestrian only uh, future. That sounds really interesting. Thank you. Um, just as a last gasp, I guess, um, you know, it was very nice. The, there's been some worry about the future of funding issues, and, and current May, May, Mayor Mahan and previous Mayor Licardo have had some media uh, letter writing and disagreements about the future of. Uh, uh, where exactly, you know, the, the future of Deer Don should end up at this time. Uh, good luck in those continuing questions. And budget issues, uh, I, I really felt that, you know, all through this process, it's been very clear what, what you know, what's being spent. I mean, it was an, a bit of an overspend, but there was a certain uh, practice in how overspending practices can work in that way to eventually make up and cover those losses. And to make that eventual change would be difficult, but we were trying to do that. That was my feeling. Um, with that said, uh, yeah, I have had the personal feeling, just uh, the last guess, one more try to offer, um, besides building the tunnel, uh, underneath uh, Santa Clara. Uh, is there a way to possibly do it on the next block over? Is that Julian or St. John? Uh, St. John or St. James, one of those two. Um, and, and have it go uh, by the park. And I know that's uncomfortable to yourselves, but making that future street a, a pedestrian and bike-only street, uh, there'd be a lot less inconvenience in making the tunnel and I just think it might be better I thought I'd mention it one more time and that we are waiting for the tunnel boring decision it's being put off I think from 2024 we don't have to be specific in our future explanations of these things but try to be accurate and give people a good time thank you back to the committee thank you um, while I wait to see if any of my other colleagues have questions I'm just gonna ask one uh, I, the current alignment of the tracks is um, at grade with the station. Uh, I, how many more tracks wide does that have to go to accommodate all the different lines coming through when, when the project's done? That's still in flux. There's still operational analysis going on by multiple the, the different providers going in. Um, so I, I don't have a, a direct okay. answer for you right now. But I, your, your rendering, one of the renderings on the slide showed an, an elevated set of tracks above the current height is that this is just all speculation at this point about where the tracks will go and whether it'll be elevated or under or at the current grade right so the 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 disc process which was a multi-agency process to come up with a concept design did land on the elevated being the best option um, and had ideas about how many tracks would be needed um, but current work is assessing out all the assumptions made in that work um, and trying to figure out exactly what really is needed um, now that you know Caltrain is now uh, uh, electrified and, and high-speed rail is still working out exactly how many uh, um, tracks and, and uh, uh, platforms they actually need. Okay, and the decision about this, I mean, it might be a long time before high-speed rail actually gets that far. Um, are we, would we start construction and work on this ahead of time with the leaving the room for the potential tracks that they're doing, or, or what's the timeline and how will that gel with the, the other transit agency timelines? Yeah, I mean, the timeline is still quite in flux, partly because of the operations analysis we need, as well as the, um, the funding, right? I mean, this is gonna be a big, expensive project. Um, it really will help reshape parts of downtown. Okay. Um, so there isn't a timeline just yet. Would we go ahead before high-speed rail is completely ready, um, in a way? 
Uh, we're not waiting for high-speed rail to solidify their plans. The value of Deerdon Station is there, whether here high-speed rail, wh whatever high-speed rail's plans are. Um, we do need to know their operational information to make sure that we're at least hitting their upward bound, because the last thing we want to do is build a station and realize, oh, we need more tracks already. Right. right. Make sure we have a built-in the long-term capacity needs mm -hmm. for, for future expansion if it's not coming in the near future. That's right. And so we're stress testing with uh, uh, kind of inflated numbers of riderships to make sure of ridership to make sure that hey, if it does get to this point, are we are we going to be future proofing our scenario or not? Okay. Thank you. I don't see any other hands, so is there a motion to accept the report? So moved. Second. All right, it's been moved and seconded, so let's vote. All right, that motion carries 4-0. Thank you uh, for the report, Ramses. We're going to move on to our final report today, which is our Transportation Activities Annual Report. Thank you very much, and yes, this is the last one. And Zaire Golzada, Division Manager for our regional program, is here to provide that presentation. Thank you, John. Good afternoon, committee members and members of the public. I'm Zaire Golzada, Division Manager, managing the Department of Transportation Regional Highway Project Team and DOT's Transit and Rail Team. Today, I will briefly provide you an overview of the key goals of the regional program. Then I will focus on two projects, the 101 Blossom Hill interchange project, which was completed um, last year, and then the Trimble interchange project, which is still under construction. Uh, additional information on these and other regional highway projects can be found in the regional highway section of the TNE report. The regional, key goal, the regional program has key goals. The, goals, um, the key goals are, the, the, are to modernize our major infrastructure in the city, provide safe direct connection between communities divided by freeways, connect trails in major bikeway and bike and pet corridors, and utilize complete street standards to provide separated facilities for bike pets where, where feasible. As you'll see, these projects utilize unique design elements to incorporate safety for all modes into the overall project. Focusing on the US 101 Blossom Hill Interchange Improvement Project, I'm so excited to let you know that this project has been completed as, of, as the first San Jose Measure B funded project. The total cost of this project was $49 million. The design of this interchange project is not the typical vehicle-centric focused interchange, but it is designed to provide safe access for bikes and pets, simultaneously addressing the congestion and operational needs of the area. The scope includes the construction of a bridge structure between two existing bridges to accommodate additional lanes with new medians and a separate class one facility providing safe crossings. The top picture shows the overall project. The unique feature of the project, shown in green, is the enhanced Class 1 bike pad facility, which starts at Coyote Creek Trail on the east side of 101 and continues to Monterey on the west side of 101. In the project rendering to the right, um, you can see construction inspector inspecting the artistic elements of the project along the retaining wall of the, of the bridge landing. 
As you can see, as you can imagine, the artistic elements were very important to the community. Thus, the project team took great care to ensure community input was at the center of the selection process. The final art elements installed, including a bicycle gear design on the screening walls and an oak leaf design on the undercrossing and retaining walls. Once on the west side of US 101, the bike path facility starts to descend back down to continue to Monterey Road with, an, with a new sidewalk connecting Xander's Crossing at the west side of 101. The bottom right picture shows the two undercrossing under the southbound on and off ramp after the project was completed. It is important to note that the undercrossing structures were designed to maximize the light by providing large openings, creating a safe, comfortable facility for all users. After two years of construction period, the project has been mainly complete of a, as of spring 2023. I'm excited to announce that the Blossom Hill project has received five awards on the state and local level, including the state, the state of California Transportation Foundation Project of the Year in the Highway Interchange category, the American Public Works Association Silicon Valley Chapter for Transportation Project of the Year, and the American Society of Civil Engineers San Francisco Section for 2023 Project of the Year. And a couple of other notable awards are listed on the slide. These pictures are of the project team at the various ceremonies, including staff from VTA, staff, city, Caltrans, and consultant. As you can see, these projects require the cooperation of multi-agencies to complete. The next slide uh, shows the 101 Trimble Dela Cruz Interchange Improvement Project located on the north side of, air, uh, north side of the airport in the North San Jose area. The project sits at the, at the City of San Jose, City of Santa Clara, and County of Santa Clara jurisdiction line, as well as within the jurisdiction of the San Jose International Airport approach area. With the oversight from the Federal Aviation Administration and Caltrans, making the project that much more complex. In addition, this is San Jose's second Measure B funded project. We also applied for 25 million SB1 funding, which, we, which, we, which was awarded. This actually created a savings to the Measure B of $25 million. As with, one, as with the 101 Blossom Hill Interchange Project, the US 101 Trimble Project also uses unique design features to enhance the bike path facilities crossing the otherwise busy vehicle-centric interchange. The main improvements include replacing the existing vehicle bridge because it does not meet current seismic standards and operational needs. The new bridge will accommodate additional lanes to support the area operational traffic needs. The scope also includes the installation of a new separate multi-use class one path along the north side of the interchange connecting Guadalupe River Trail in the east to Dela Cruz Central Expressway on the west, as shown in the green. Starting on the right side of the picture at the Guadalupe Trail System, the multi-use facility will continue from there through the new modified signalized intersection of Seaboard Avenue, Dela Cruz, and Trimble intersection, including, including at this intersection are bulbats and shortened lanes, uh, shortened crossings, excuse me, 
for shorter crossings for pet bikes. The enhanced bike pet facilities will continue crossing a narrow single lane northbound on-ramp, climbing with Trimble profile to avoid the major off and on ramps at the grade crossings. The project provides a separate ADA compliant spiral ramp under crossings and staircase for those who wish to shorten their route. This project broke ground in September 2021 and has been progressing rapidly with most of the work focused on the bridge construction. The slide show, this slide shows the progress of the bridge structure. This is significant scope of the construction of the project. These images shows the concrete prep pour work conducted by, the, by our uh, contractors. The carpet of steel rebars you see in these two pictures strength, strength, uh, provide the strength and flexibility to the bridge structure, allowing the bridge to carry thousands of vehicles per day and withstands California strictest seismic requirements. There has been substantial progress on the bicycle pedestrian facility, including the staircase, slope paving, and architectural treatments like the artwork depicting Lupe the Mammoth placed along the undercrossing structure. Lupe the Mammoth decor was named after the Guadalupe River Mammoth fossil site discovered in 2005. Other, no other notable features include the open air undercrossing seen on under construction. This is similar to the Blossom Hill open air undercrossings. Lastly, the new construction, the new constructed staircase creating, creates a shortcut to those who wish to, uh, who wish a shorter route. The, the construction of the US 101 Dela Cruz Trimble Road Interchange Project is progressing and is expected to be complete by late this year with an estimated cost of 76 million, of which 25 million was SB1 grant 46 million was from Measure B, and the remaining from our local match. Thank you so much, and I'll turn it over to Ramses to continue. Hello, uh, Ramses Madhu, Division Manager DOT again. Um, I'm gonna quickly cover the Monterey Corridor uh, planning we've been doing. Um, Monterey Corridor um, is seeing a lot of attention um, from a lot of facets of the city right now. Um, uh, from the Metcalf uh, 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 high uh, volt uh, project that's going to be uh, going along the whole corridor um, to about 16 uh, recently completed or active transportation planning and building projects um, that will uh, really modernize uh, what this former highway looks like for those who use it on a daily basis. Um, Today, I'm really gonna focus on one thing, which is the community-based transportation plan um, that was led by VTA, but was in close concert with the, the transportation planning team and Department of Transportation. The uh, plan uh, built on the Monterey Corridor Working Group, um, which was a uh, uh, multi-district uh, effort to uh, create a vision for the quarter, both at an economic as well as transportation and otherwise uh, yeah, piece of work. Um, and it is leading uh, also to the Monterey Corridor Transit Project, which is uh, looking at how to increase uh, transit reliability on the corridor. Um, the community-based transportation plan really focuses on community needs, 
what are folks who live and work on this corridor needing um, and how can we improve the corridor to help them do that. Uh, looking particularly at historically underserved populations, um, there's a lot of uh, communities of uh, the communities of concern in that area um, to help us uh, plan this corridor. You can see here um, the breakdowns of the identities of those who we surveyed through this process, did our absolute best uh, to get everything across ages, across income types, and across uh, the race and other types of diversity on the corridor to make sure we were getting all voices in the pot as we created a recommendation. You can see here uh, some of the outcome of that outreach, uh, particularly the online survey where folks were able to identify where they saw problems uh, and what kinds of problems they were. Unsurprisingly, uh, the Kirtner Avenue and Monterey uh, intersection and Capitol intersection were the two highest uh, um, noticed points on the map. As you may know, Kurtner and Monterey is one of uh, our uh, focuses for our Vision Zero projects right now because of the uh, a few deaths recently and one even uh, only about a month or two ago. Um, a lot of the work on this quarter has to do with safety. This was a former highway that, was, that carried traffic from South County up into uh, San Jose um, and is no longer that service 101 takes that, um, that function over and we need to transform this uh, roadway into something that works for all folks using it. So you can see a lot of the, the summary of needs focuses on safety, which has to do with crossings, which has to do with markings, which has to do with better lighting, uh, um, uh, sorry, signal uh, priorities and things like that, as well as making the transit service better, all right? There's a, uh, this is one of the, a, a very important transit corridor for the county, uh, bringing a lot of folks from South County up into the jobs rich areas uh, north um, and making sure those buses are getting reliable uh, travel times as well as uh, the bus stops being, uh, uh, having good amenities. The plan uh, breaks out its recommendations into a few categories. Uh, a lot of them, again, looking at pedestrian safety, bike safety, um, keeping the, the um, uh, traffic calm. Now, the plan didn't only look at Monterey. It also looked at the neighborhoods immediately surrounding it. So we wouldn't be putting any traffic calming directly on Monterey, per se, um, but in some of the roads uh, potentially surrounding it. Um, other uh, categories here include uh, school safety programs, making sure folks are being uh, taught how to use the roads safely at an early age. Um, increasing bus stop amenities um, and transitioning the roadway over to a Grand Boulevard um, uh, as it is actually uh, uh, designated in the general plan. And with that, I'll conclude the report. Okay, thank you very much. Let's uh, go to public comment first. Jordan Muldo. Hi, thank you for the report. Uh, first, thank you for the class one uh, trails that are integrated into the two interchange projects that you highlighted. Um, class one is really the only good way to go when you're building uh, bike connections uh, across an interchange. Otherwise, it's just not going to be safe and people aren't going to want to use it. So thank you for incorporating the class one. Um, and also thank you for your designs on the Monterey Highway, um, especially the idea of removing travel lanes. Um, 
Unfortunately, the policies of San Jose and VTI are only to build class one uh, trails on interchanges when feasible, rather than requiring it. Um, in the packet, uh, one of the projects which was not presented was the 101 Zanker project, uh, which is proposing to build something like an eight lane uh, overpass over 101, um, and it will have uh, a class four separated bike lane rather than class one uh, completely separated trail uh, because apparently there's not enough room uh, after you factor in those eight lanes. Um, so really, I feel like the city should really focus on class one being required, not just uh, when feasible. Um, I also want to connect this to the other previous two agenda items. So when you build capacity for roadways and highways, which all of these projects do, you're inducing demand for travel, which is going to increase VMT, uh, which means your roadways are going to deteriorate faster and there's more roadways to repave. So repaving is just going to get worse and worse over time if we keep building these big interchanges and make it uh, just easier to use the highway. So please, I really urge you to reverse course on this and stop expanding highways. Thank you. How Jun Lee? Hi, um, thank you, uh, Hao Jun Lee from District 6. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Chair uh, Gohan and Vice Chair Davis and members of the community. Um, I really do love the US one. Well, thank you staff, of course, for the, for the um, class one bike and pet facilities on separated bike and pet crossings <clears throat> on the US 101 Dela Cruz Boulevard Trimble Road Exchange and the US 101 Blossom Hill Road Exchange. Those are amazing. I can't wait to use them. Um, and as uh, Jordan said, I would also recommend the same class one bike and pet facilities to be planned for the I-280 Winchester Boulevard Interchange Project and the US 101 Zenker Road Project. I believe both of them are also in District 6, which is under uh, Vice Chair Davis, which is also where I live. So um, that's all. Thank you. I yield my time. Blair Beekman. Hi, uh, Blair Beekman. Uh, thanks a lot for this item. Thanks a lot for the words of the previous public comment uh, describing the future of uh, repaving. Uh, to me, permeable pavement means the ideas of, say, rubber and silicon, not necessarily concrete. Uh, good luck how to really think of uh, flexibility in the future of paving. That's, that's an important concept. There really is good ideas. We have to address the future of trucking. And uh, good luck in, in thinking of flexibility in terms of paving. Uh, for this item, you talk about safe streets, complete streets, vision zero. Thank you. Um, I guess you know how important uh, accountability, tech accountability practices are with the future of vision zero and complete streets to myself. Uh, you know, we can't just talk about one side of the issue. We have to be accountable with the public in our practices as how to build the future of uh, peace and sustainability and positiveness. And uh, so it's a real commitment that uh, we work towards accountability with all the new tech that will be placed within Vision Zero and Complete Streets. Um, I, I didn't quite understand if, if you talked about items of uh, the future of east-west uh, bike pathways, uh, you know, like, like in South San Jose. 
I think that's a really important concept for our future that I hope uh, is being considered here on this sort of item. And um, just an overall hope that uh, a thank you for this item again, and that we talk about uh, you know projects. We may not have specific exact dates for things, but if we can give some you know generalities and people can get a sense of how projects are going, uh, that's important. Uh, to build accountability in, in, in these sort of presentations is important. Good luck in that effort to share information and knowledge and ideas with the public. Thank you. Thank you, and back to the committee. Okay, I don't see any hands up. Uh, thank you for the report. Um, <clears throat> I'm excited to see the uh, Trimble 101 project opening later this year, which will improve uh, you know, transportation of all forms at that area, including that, that innovative uh, you know, bike lane loop. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing the Zanker 101 project begin to appear on these reports as the, it gets closer in the future. Uh, do we have a motion to accept the report? Move to accept the report. Second. Okay, it looks like we have no more comments, so we'll move to a vote. All right, that motion carries 4-0, and we're on to open forum. Blair Beekman. Hi, thank you, Blair Beekman. Thanks for the meeting today. Um, I got a, a letter from Paul Soto a couple days ago uh, that he got a memo from somewhere uh, from last Friday describing Tony Tabor has, has, has written out a memo that the Zoom uh, meeting process is going to be uh, ending at the end of this week. Uh, I was really surprised by this memo. I think many probably are. I hope you can go into some explanations uh, for ourselves and what to expect about the future of uh, the Zoom process, the public meeting process for ourselves as the public. I think it's a bit sudden. I don't disagree with your decision making and your thinking, but I, I just think it needs a bit more time as, as, a, as it's been a really important part of the community process for years now. Uh, and we have to, I just think, have a bit more time in, in, in slowly easing it out. Uh, you know, if you want to choose the end of February or perhaps, you know, an Easter break, you know, when there isn't COVID around, there still is COVID around, guys. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people really count on uh, Zoom as a, as, a, as a needed public meeting process, uh, you know, to, to put their part into the process. We need to be considering how to work on accessibility practices after we end Zoom. Um, I have a few ideas in that way. I've written yourself some letters about. I hope we can continue that dialogue. And to the people who are, you know, really creating a problem for Zoom, I think we can understand that their words are kind of childish and we instantly know when, when they're speaking about something, how to cut them off. I think San, San Jose has done a remarkable job in that way. I think and, and a great example. Uh, I hope it's legal. I think there can be legal ways to just, to do that. And it's not a question so much of free speech. I think they're taking advantage of free speech. And what should be a more shared common decency in a public meeting space? Besides that, please don't cut off Zoom so soon. Please give us some time and public dialogue. How Jim Lee? Oh, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Chair and staff. So I echo what the previous commenter said about Zoom. So I'm actually she's sick today so um this is a great example of the fact that i can still be able to make comments and talk to the um, the committee uh, even though I, I have covid right now um and additionally i would like to uh raise the raise an issue of the trails the garlic river trails 
So uh, many of our trails, such as the Guadalupe River Trail, are essential commuting class one bike paths. However, they have been flooded with debris blocking the underpass for weeks. Um, in contrast, when the roadway is blocked by downed trees, as we have seen the past weekend, the city almost always cleans them up immediately after uh, a couple hours for drivers. So I will request the community to devise a plan to reopen trails as fast as you open the roadways or perhaps build overpasses where current underpasses are flooding seasonally. Um, that'll be all. Thank you so much for your work. I yield the rest of my time. Jordan Maldo. I'd like to echo everything that Haojun said. Um, you know, when it, it's not just that the bicyclists have trails that are blocked, it's that, you know, you don't necessarily know if a trail is blocked until you reach it. And then you might have to double back for a mile or more and then, you know, get on, you know, say North First Street, which is just very unsafe for cyclists. Um, I understand it's going to be a very long uh, amount of work in order to prevent flooding from happening in those low areas, but um, other mitigation efforts can be put into place for when flooding subsides, clearing the trails, as Haujin said, deploying safe detours for cyclists, um, you know, preferably just having a lot more class one and class four bikeways across the city so that when one trail network goes down, there are alternatives to get you to your destination because there are people who commute on the Guadalupe River Trail and other trails. Um, and, you know, they don't have a gazillion options for detours like car drivers have. Um, so please consider that, um, especially as, you know, climate change worsens. Um, and then I wanted to third all the thoughts about the Zoom public comments. Um, I strongly urge you to reconsider. Um, you know, again, the storm is huge, taking down power lines and trees and people driving like maniacs. So I decided to stay home rather than, you know, potentially risking my life to come to the, the city council chambers in person. Um, I think this is a great tool for people to be engaged in their government. And I realize that the hate speech needs to be curtailed, um, but I feel like it has to be curtailed in a way that doesn't disenfranchise huge swaths of the population. Uh, and I'm calling on the city to put together a task force to see how we could potentially rework public comment over the internet. Thank you. Thank you, and back to the committee. All right, thank you, everyone. We are adjourned at 3.18 p.m.